reading this evening comes from 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The Old Testament reading is Psalm 21. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the requests of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. 
Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is the word of the Lord. Who you honor says a lot about you. In Shakespeare's King Lear, if you remember the story, a father chooses to give his inheritance to the two daughters who will flatter him rather than to the one who actually loves him. The fact that Lear honors the flatterers and dishonors his loyal daughter tells us a lot about his shallowness of understanding of the situation. In our psalm today, we're going to learn something about God by looking at who he honors. Uh, And the person who he chooses to honor is his chosen king. Last week, or sorry, last month, last psalm, I mentioned that this section of psalms, Psalms 18 through 24, are all about kingship. In the last psalm, Psalm 20, we saw the people calling out for God to answer the king and give him the desires of his heart. Uh, In this psalm, we see the people recognize that God has answered their prayer and that God has given great gifts to this king in order to glorify him. As we look at this psalm this evening, we're going to see three points. First, God shows his strength by glorifying his king. Second, God shows his strength by defeating the king's enemies. And third, we're going to see what God's glory looks like as it's revealed in the ultimate king, King Jesus. So, the first point. God shows his strength by glorifying the king. Verse 5 could be the theme verse for this song. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. His glory is great through your salvation. On the one hand, you have the king's glory, and on the other hand, you have God's saving acts, and they're tied together. God's salvation is where the king finds his glory. Let's look through the first seven verses and see how this dynamic plays out. Verses 1 to 2. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You've given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. God has answered the prayer of the last psalm by giving the king the desire of his heart. Uh, And the king, for his part, desires, rejoices in, delights in God. Specifically, God's strength and his salvation. In other words, the king finds God glorious. Verse 3, For you meet him with rich blessings, You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. God delights to give good things to his king and marks him out as king with a brilliant crown upon his head made of the finest gold. That really is, it's not just regular gold there, it's fine gold. Verse 4, he asked life of you and you gave it to him, 
length of days forever and ever. The king asked God for life, and God overabundantly gives him a long and full life. This might even sound like eternal life. And maybe that's just hyperbole. It is true that in the ancient Near East, people are always saying things to kings like, O king, live forever, or in every Egyptian inscription I ever, ever read, um, given life like Ra forever. They always say that about the king. They knew the king would die, and they, they always say that, live forever. Um, even if it is a little bit hyperbolic, I think the Holy Spirit, when he inspired these words, probably had in mind the fact that the gift of long life that's given to the kings of old points forward to the real king who's going to bring everlasting life. So this may be hyperbole about David, but it, turns out, it might turn out to be true about Jesus. Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I'll, I'll just make that point. Verse 5. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. The words here are very visible words. They don't just describe the king's power and might abstractly. They describe the visible representation of it. It might help for us to imagine the king's throne room. Monumental architecture, great blocks of stone, gold and precious jewels everywhere. And at the far end, a high throne with a man arrayed in majestic robes and a gleaming crown upon his head. Why do we have all of this pomp associated with state? What's the point of it? It's to communicate to you that this man is important. This man is somebody to be honored. And this is what God does for his king. He makes him glorious and splendid in his majesty so that the people know that he is to be honored. Verse 6, For you make him most blessed forever, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. There's actually two different ways to translate the beginning of this verse. It's a little difficult to pick. We could have, as ESV has, you make him uh, most blessed forever, or you give him blessings forever. But it could also be translated, you make him a bless blessings forever. The idea here being that the king is the source of blessing rather than the one who receives it. Either way, the point is that the king is the place of God's blessing. Verse 7, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall not be moved. The king trusts in the Lord. As we're going to see in some future psalms, starting with the very next psalm, that's not always easy. It's not always an easy thing to do. But the king does persevere. David perseveres in trusting God, and as a result... He is not moved. He is protected and defended by God because of God's steadfast love, God's determination and commitment to bless the king. What's the overall thread that unites this whole story? It's God's determination to answer the people's prayer from the last psalm by giving glory, honor, majesty, life to the king. It's God's abundant generosity to the king that is on highlight here. We should also notice some parallels to Psalm 8. Does anybody still remember Psalm 8? Um, Psalm 8 is about humans. It discusses how God, how God has made humanity um, and, and set him a little lower than the angels and crowned, crowned him with glory and light. That one verse, especially verses 5 to 6, 
Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So notice the crowning uh, and the glory and honor, some of the same Hebrew words. There's also a connection that's a little bit more subtle. Um, The verb for put in Psalm 8.6 shows up, as in you have put all things under his feet, shows up three times in Psalm 21. It's the verb in you make him in verse 6, and also you will make them in verse 9, and you will put them in verse 12. So it's really hard to read this. If you know Psalm 8, it's hard to read this psalm without getting some of those reminders. What is that saying? Well, if Psalm 8 describes the ideal of a human in relation to God, and I picture an ideal humanity, then Psalm 21 takes this picture of ideal humanity and applies it to the king. It's no wonder then if the, New Test- the apostles in the New Testament all read Psalm 8 as if it's about Jesus, when if you just read it on its own, you might just think it was about humans. The Psalter is already doing that. It's saying, look to the, ki- the Davidic king. This is the place where God is going to restore his plan for a glorified humanity is through this king. Do you see in these verses how eager God is to bless the king, to give him wealth and long life and everything that might elevate him in the eyes of this people and visibly show how important he is? God is committed to glorifying his king. By the way, what is glory? I think we should talk about that. That's one of those Bible words that we use a lot, but uh, do we know what it means? Um, it's It's a big concept, but... I would summarize it by saying that there's two parts to the idea of glory. On the one hand, uh, glory is honor. It's showing the appropriate respect and value towards others in social relationships. Treating somebody in a way that appropriately recognizes their importance. It's not surprising that the same word can also mean heavy. Do you see the metaphor here? When you honor a person, you treat them as weighty, substantial, somebody who has weight with you. You're taking them seriously. But there's a second part to glory as well, and that is this metaphor of light, of radiance, of beauty. Glory is the visible manifestation of how important a person is. It should be no surprise then that the glory of God His visible manifestation is blindingly brilliant. But in this passage, the emphasis is not not on humans giving glory to God, but God giving glory to the king. God builds up his king with blessings, he honors him, and he gives him a regal beauty which visibly communicates the way God feels about the king and how important he is. I think it was very good for Israel that God displayed his greatness by glorifying the king. After all, the people were not particularly eager to experience the direct presence of God's glory. Perhaps you remember in Exodus 20, after God's given the Ten Commandments, and he's appeared in fire and smoke to the whole people and spoken the Ten Commandments to them in a roaring voice. What do they say? Do they say that was a great pyrotechnic show? Let's do this every week? Is that how they feel about it? No, they're terrified. They say, they go to Moses and they say, don't let God speak to us, he'll destroy us. It's too much. 
They need Moses to be a mediator between them and God. Somebody who can communicate from God to them in a way that they can bear. That's not just how it works with Moses and other prophets. It's also how it works with the king and the priests in Israel as well. The people could look at the glory of the king and see God's faithfulness to the king and get a picture of God's power and might. God's glory was bound up with the king's glory. In other words, the king mediated God's glory to them. And that's why in the last verse, we hear the people join in, joining in the king's joy over God's deliverance. Verse 13, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So notice how the psalm starts in verse 1 with the king rejoicing in God's strength, and it ends in verse 13 with we, the people, rejoicing in God's strength. This joy has been mediated from the king to the whole people. Through the king, the people of Israel are able to know and worship God. How do we apply this point to ourselves this evening? Um, Well, first of all, we are not a very big part of this psalm, are we? Uh, It mostly describes the relationship between God and the king. We only show up at the end. We will sing and praise your power. So I think the main application for this psalm has to be praise, sing, worship, rejoice in the strength of God displayed in his glorious king. Of course, it's a little different for us than it was for Israel, isn't it? We no longer have a Davidic king who sits in bright royal regalia, seated on a throne in a palace, um, but we do have something better. We have Jesus, the ultimate king, seated in heaven for us. Jesus is our only mediator. Because of our sin, we were not able to bear the sight of God's glory. Our sins separated us from God. So, what did God do? God reveals his glory in a man, Jesus Christ, so that he could come close to us without terrifying or destroying us. In a much greater way than with the Davidic king, God glorifies himself by glorifying Jesus. So I think the application for us tonight is to delight in God's glory shown to us in Christ. That's still a little broad, so let me try to give you a picture of that. How does this work? I think some of you have an easier time with Jesus than you do with God. I know because I hear it from people sometimes. And you may know that that's not theologically correct, but you might still feel that way. Jesus just seems more real, more close, more approachable to you. I think the problem here might be that if, as you look at Jesus of the Gospels, you just see his humanity. But of course, Jesus is God, of one will with the Father. So I want to challenge you this evening. When you see Jesus' glory, see God's glory. Connect the two things. How does that work? Well, if you have a hard time with God, if it's difficult for you to feel like you can know him and have a relationship with him, use Jesus as the key. If you feel like God couldn't love you because of your sexual sin, see Jesus' compassion for the adulterous woman. It's also God's compassion for you. If you think God has forgotten the poor and the world's injustice, see Jesus' anger at the money changers in the temple and see God's concern for justice. 
If you feel like God has given up on you because you have betrayed him, think back to Jesus' love displayed for Peter that Mike's been preaching to us about and the prayer that he be restored. It's also God's love for you. If you think God doesn't care about human grief, see Jesus weep at the tomb of Lazarus and see communicated here God's hatred of death and his desire that we live. Look beyond just the human nature of Jesus and see how he reveals to you God as well. Try to catch a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, the beauty of this man so full of love and justice and compassion of righteousness, and you will see God's glory displayed in him as well. I think this is a discipline we need to try to do when we read the Gospels. When we see something about Jesus, how is this passage revealing God to us in human form? God is difficult to understand, but in Christ he has revealed himself in human form so that we can know him and praise him. So that's the first point. God reveals his strength by giving the king glory. Second point. God reveals his strength by delivering the king from his enemies. Verses 8 through 12 describe how God will destroy all of David's enemies. Verse 8, he's going to find them out wherever they hide. Verse 9, he's going to consume them with the fire of his wrath. Verse 10, he's going to wipe out their descendants. Verse 11, no matter how cunning and hidden their plans, they will be thwarted by God. And verse 12, God's going to turn them around and put them to flight, and he's an, ex- he's an expert archer who's going to take them out with a headshot. Do you find these passages about the destruction of enemies difficult? I, I do sometimes. I, I'll, I'll admit it. it. It can be difficult. Let, let's talk for a moment about this destruction of the descendants in particular. I don't know, I don't know what you thought about that as we read that verse. Um, I, I want to make a, a couple things clear. First of all, Scripture is clear that children will not be put to death for the sins of their parents. If you want to read more about that, open Ezekiel 18, and he will explain to you at length that this is the case. Um, And yet we see a tension here with the fact that the Bible does often talk about punishment for sin spanning down generations. I'm not going to completely answer this question tonight. It's a complicated one, but just to give you an outline of an answer, I think the reason we see punishment spanning generations in the Bible is that sin does too. The parent, the, the, the children are punished for the sins of their parents because they make that sin their own. Um, We also have to understand the passage within the context of a kin society, an ancient society that's very oriented towards your obligations to family. If your dad is enemies with somebody, you have to be enemies with them too. That's just generally how it works. So even if you defeat your enemy, there's always another McCoy out there to go after you, uh, hunt you down and say, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. In that context, God promises David protection, not just from his enemies, but also from the whole network of relatives who would seek to avenge them. This is a needed assurance for David. Still, we must remember that Ezekiel points out that nobody who repents of their sin and turns to righteousness would be included in such a curse. And books like Ezekiel and Chronicles as well clarify at length that God loves 
to take somebody from a cursed family and turn that curse around into blessing. So we just have to remember that qualification. Okay, there's still a couple of other difficulties with this passage, though, too, right? Doesn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies? And I think we do need to recognize that God's administration has changed with Jesus. Under the old covenant, God's grace and wrath were displayed in very tangible, visible forms of an earthly kingdom, with divinely appointed borders and governments, and evil was largely embodied in human enemies um, who sought to destroy that work of God. God's commitment to deliver his people and his wrath against sin were revealed through the gift of military success, and often by immediate and miraculous judgment on those who opposed Israel. But we are living under King Jesus, whose kingdom is not of this world. We're also living in a time when the gospel is going out to the nations, a time of grace, an opportunity for repentance. So our fight is not primarily with human enemies of the gospel, but with the spiritual forces and powers that oppose Christ. We are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I think of what Augustine sometimes says at some points in the, like this in the Psalms. There are two kinds of people who are overcome, because there are two ways of being overcome. Either they are overcome in order to be converted to Christ, or they are overcome to be, convert, to be condemned by Christ. Christians desire that their enemies be destroyed by becoming their friends. And this is what we are to work and pray for. Now is the time to rob the devil by stealing his prisoners and setting them free, So it's really Satan and his fallen angels that are our true enemy. At the same time, though, Scripture is clear that there is coming a day when God will judge the world. God's wrath is very real, and it's a serious thing to be an enemy of Christ. If you're here this evening, and you have not bent the knee to Christ's lordship, I must plead with you, do not delay Don't hold on to your sin and unbelief. Come to Christ this evening. Ask God to forgive your sins, cover you with Christ's obedient sacrifice, and join you to his people. There can be no safety outside of Christ from the fires of God's wrath. The Bible says that we need Jesus because we all stand under the penalty of God's wrath without him. It paints God's wrath in vivid colors until we can almost feel the heat of the flame to see the glint from the sharpened arrows. But it doesn't do that to imprison us in terror, but to warn us clearly and openly and point us to Christ as our way of escape through the mercy and compassion that is given to us in him. Perhaps this is God calling you tonight to flee from your sin and find forgiveness and new life in him. If you're a Christian here tonight, if you've placed your trust in Christ, then you have a duty to love your enemies. But you also have an encouragement in these words that evil will not prevail forever. The injustice, the oppression, the greed, and the arrogance, and the violence of this world will not continue forever in an unending cycle of brokenness. God will step in once and for all and put everything under Christ's feet. He'll break the power of the devil forever. So even though we need to be careful to pray for and love our enemies, we can still be encouraged that the gates of hell will one day be broken and Christ's kingdom will prevail over his enemies. 
So, that's the second point. God will show his strength by defeating the king's enemies. Um, once again, um, it's been hard for me to read through this psalm without jumping ahead to Jesus. It's just especially hard to do that when the psalm is about the king. But let me close with one more thought about how Jesus transforms this psalm. We know that God's glory is revealed in Jesus. But the New Testament shows us that it's revealed in a very peculiar way, through weakness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. So I want to close by pointing our attention to the glory of Christ displayed in his weakness. Because this is part of what might have been surprising if you've been reading the Psalms and expecting the Messiah, and then you got Jesus. It's a very peculiar kind of beauty. But we won't understand Jesus' glory unless we see it. It's the glory of one who lays down his life for his friends. What great love, what great faith in God it must have taken for Christ to endure what he did. Abandoned by friends falsely accused and convicted, robbed and stripped, beaten and mocked, then publicly nailed to a cross and reviled by all those who pass by. Is that beautiful? Is that glorious? Friends, in God's mysterious economy, it is. In his defeat, Jesus conquers Satan. In his death, Jesus ushers in new life. In his weakness, Jesus shows us the power of God. He must wear the crown of thorns here below before he can ascend to receive a heavenly crown at his Father's right side. And what is it that makes this all so beautiful to us? It's the love that lies behind it. The love of God which loved you with such an invincible force that it would not stand any, uh, would not stand any opposition, it was willing to become flesh, suffer a thousand injuries and insults, suffer even to the point of death, that you might be redeemed. If you are ever tempted to doubt the love of God, if you're ever tempted to doubt his commitment to you, see here the glory of God in the loving endurance of our Savior. When we see the glory of this King God has given us, when we see his power and weakness, what can we do but say, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glory shown in Christ. I ask that you would be at work in my heart and the heart of all of us here. Help us to treasure this glory more deeply. Help us to remember it more often. And help it to drive us away from our sin to seek refuge in the protection of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well.